Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Now, everyone questions how life would end every once in a while, so we thought it would be an interesting idea to make a podcast about it. In this special episode, we pulled together our physics and engineering college group to tackle this sort of discussion. Remember back in the mission statement of the podcast where I mentioned all of those interesting and insightful conversations that my friends and I have? Well, this podcast is a sneak peek into that reality. During the show, each one of us will have a specific topic of discussion where we will go around the room and introduce why our topic will end life. Once each argument is made, a peer review of their position will follow because that's just how science works. Topics such as asteroidal impacts, solar flares, and others will be highlighted in the episode. Now please let me introduce some of my close friends, starting with Panyapit Eriksit. Pan became an exchange student here in the U.S. during his junior year of high school and decided to go to college starting at Slippery Rock University. Pan had to be a copycat, but him and I have similar degrees and professions. He graduated from Pitt and Slippery Rock, like myself, with dual degrees in physics and engineering. Currently, Panya Pitt is our quality control manager with the podcast and is working as a civil engineer back in his home country, Thailand. Next is Wyatt Rosenberger. Wyatt studied physics and mathematics at Slippery Rock University and is now pursuing a master's in data analytics there. Currently, Wyatt is working under contract as an integration analyst for Innovu Incorporated. Like many other people in this episode, I tutored physics with Wyatt back in Slippery Rock. Wyatt also plans to co-host some upcoming episodes with me in the near future, so stay tuned for that. Next we have Chase Zygmunt. Chase earned his physics undergrad and master's in data science at Slippery Rock University. There he was actively the head tutor for mentoring students who struggle with physics 1, 2, and 3 concepts. Today he is a data manager and analyst at the University of Pittsburgh's emergency medicine department. Next we have Gavin Woodard. Gavin has an undergraduate degree in physics and a master's degree in data analytics from Slippery Rock University. As of right now, Gavin is working as a predictive analyst in higher education. One fun fact about Gavin is that he used to host a podcast called Chasing Chocobos and was based on the Final Fantasy franchise. And now I guess I should explain who I am real quick. I am as advertised at the beginning of each show, but I am also a STEAM education ambassador for Jacobs, one of the most well-known engineering firms in the world. I graduated summa cum laude with two degrees in physics and civil structural engineering, as well as a minor in mathematics. And then we have Cody Brandt. Cody is our senior editor for Woke Talk Podcast. Cody and I both served as physics tutors together at Slippery Rock University, and while I was running the 3D printing lab there, he was running the planetarium for the department and hosting venues for the university as well as the public. And last but certainly not least, we have David Beam. David graduated in 2020 as a petroleum engineer from Slippery Rock University. While in school, David was an active member of his fraternity Kappa Sigma and held leadership roles in a few clubs like the Slippery Rock Physics and Engineering Club. Okay, now that we've met everyone on the show and know what's to come, we are going to jump into our first commercial break, but please chill out with us because when we return from commercial, we will be jumping into the first three topics to end it all. Welcome to the first segment of Thoughts of Armageddon. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. This is our very first recording with multiple people in one room, so please bear with us. To my left is first-time guest, Wyatt Rosenberger. To his left is our third-time guest, David Beam. And then all the way over there, we have our beloved senior editor, Cody Brandt. 
the rest couldn't make it because they're online. So they're just going to have to contribute to the magic a different way. For the first segment, we'll highlight the first three thoughts of Armageddon. Without further delay, I'd like to turn it over to Wyatt, and you have the floor, my man. Awesome. So I'm going to tell you guys what solar flares could do to Earth and how it could affect our lives and cause an Armageddon. But in order to first talk about solar flares, I feel like i got to cover some things, like what is a solar flare and what causes them, how these astrophysicists are tracking these events, and what we're doing to prevent them. Basically, I'll start off by explaining what causes them. The sun basically being a big ball of plasma is full of these gases that have become super you know, heated and they now have an electrical charge because they've been stripped of some electrons. And these charged particles create magnetic fields that cause convection currents called granules on the surface of the sun. And these granules follow along with the magnetic fields in these convection currents. and Constantly, these fields are spreading particles out into space. Mostly, they're electrons and protons, but they can also be carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. But those are less likely caused by higher intensity stuff. But these particles that are getting spread out are what is known as the solar wind that we're constantly observing. We know that the solar wind exists from a few reasons or observations we made. Comets, tails, they're made of plasma. And the plasma is always pointing away from the sun due to the particles interacting with each other. So when these magnetic fields are strong enough, uh, sunspots can be created. And these are basically like the north and south poles of a magnet. And they indicate areas of high magnetic energy. And from these sunspots, a few different solar events could occur. A solar flares being the most common and then... As the energy gets higher, you know, you get progressively worse weather on the sun. So solar flares themselves are caused when basically like the sunspots are so strong. The magnetic fields created by those granules are so strong that, and there's so many of them oftentimes that like the fields get twisted basically, and they can release you know large portion of energy and pull particles along with it. And this is what a solar flare is basically higher energy particles getting shot into space. Not always at Earth, you know. Just anywhere. Yeah, it could be in any direction. So we don't always have to worry about them, but I mean, we kind of do always have to worry about them just to, you know, be prepared for anything that could occur. Now, uh, coronal mass ejection is something that oftentimes is associated with solar flares, but not always. These are a higher energy solar wind, basically. Now, when these CMEs come into vicinity of earth it can affect our magnetic field and it can actually like warp it because it has its own magnetic field being a plasma that was sent out from the sun and can warp our magnetic field and cause geomagnetic storms actually and this is one of the issues that comes up with solar flares this is also what causes the auroras actually it's when the high energy particles are coming in they can follow the field lines created by Earth's magnetic field, and towards the poles they can enter in. So the Carrington event was actually the strongest solar flare that has been recorded by scientists. This happened in 1859, but back then there was only telegraphs. There wasn't our large electrical grids that we have nowadays, So, but largely didn't affect 
most people's day-to-day lives, but it did affect all the telegraphs. Basically it even like shocked some people and caught fires and it was, <laughs> yeah, it caused quite a mayhem. But now, you know, we obviously got to watch out for similar events from affecting us. Yeah. Cause our grid's way more developed than what it was in no. 1859. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> way more developed. So the sun and its solar flares are on an 11 year cycle. And during the maximums, we see stronger magnetic fields going on. And it's definitely more active time during the sun's cycles. During this maximum, there's, there could be like multiple flares occurring every day, but during the minimums, it might only occur, you know, once every week or so. And most of the time, solar flares don't really affect us because they might not be pointing at us or they don't have enough energy to really cause any problems. But these solar flares are listed in classes. They go, uh, B as the lowest, and then C, and then M, and then X. Each class is 10 orders of magnitude stronger. So class C is 10 times that of B, and class M is 10 times that of C. But even class M solar flares mostly aren't a problem for us. We mostly got to look out for class X, and those are pretty powerful. They can cause you know some problems, but we have a lot of caution set up to deter them. So to actually collect this data. They have a few satellites and stuff. The SOHO or the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory has been observing the sun for 25 years almost. And it mostly looks at the corona of the sun and like just the surface. It actually blocks out most of it. So it doesn't even look at the middle of it basically. But then launched in 2018, I think was the Parker Solar Probe. And that just reached the corona a few weeks ago, but that was the closest we've ever been to the sun. And yeah. We're currently collecting a lot of data, getting a lot of new stuff. But getting back to how this could affect our lives and cause the whole Armageddon, the solar storms could, if they're powerful enough, these CMEs can disrupt electrical grids, disrupt navigation systems, take out satellites. It's really dangerous for a lot of like aerospace and aeronautics, I guess, because anybody in space, and not just in space, but in high altitudes could be affected greatly by these. And if it knocks out, you know, satellites and other navigation systems, anybody in like a plane, anything like that could, you know, be in some serious trouble. Yeah. And I think even with how the sun is supposed to shift more towards a red giant as we move forward, doesn't the effects of turning into a red giant create more iron in its core? That's why it expands outward. And then I think the magnetization of the sun is only going to get more exponentiated as we move forward. So wouldn't that mean that we're going to get larger solar flares? In time, like right now, it's not as bad, but it it could potentially get worse with the more iron that's added to the core. You know, I haven't actually put much thought into like that, but it definitely probably could. So astrophysicists have studied the data more and they're projecting that there's a solar flare that could go off. Like expect something like that to be orders of magnitude more powerful than even the Carrington event back in the 1800s. And it could have some widespread damage, you know, if we don't have the right precautions set up. But also that's, if we haven't observed anything like that, I think they're just using the data and making projections of it. I haven't looked too much into it. Well, it's something that we really haven't dealt with in the past. So it's something that we're just kind of using the theoretics to help guide us. I was kind of curious about like what you were saying about before. If such a crucial event happened as that, would that just be it for just like completely instant or will it be that like, taking some time for us to realize this, would there be signs that we'd be able to tell and be able to predict? Yeah, actually. There's a lot of satellites pointed at the sun and observing, and you know we have a lot of astrophysicists on Earth 
paying attention to what's going on. So the sunspots are a really good indicator because they point towards areas of high magnetic energy, and that's what causes most of these storms. And if something were to go off, the one problem is that the highest energy particles are going to be moving the speed of light. So we're only going to have, we will have eight minutes for those to hit us. And in that time, we could possibly send, you know, information back about the rest of what's coming. Because what are we going to do in eight minutes? You You can't get to your bunker in eight minutes. Yeah, we're not going to do a whole lot in eight minutes. But depending on, you know, how big it is, how much energy it has, it could take a few hours to get to us. And in that time, astrophysicists, I'm assuming, will alert cities and other like areas where things could you know seriously affect them which would be you know closer to the poles areas of high altitude but for the most part the earth's magnetic field and atmosphere protects us from most of these high energy particles and what comes through isn't much even for the carrington event the strongest solar flare that we observed auroras were observed aurora borealis right that's the northern one mm-hmm. uh, was observed all the way down in the caribbean oh wow yeah it went cool. all the way down there. So you think there'll be more intense radiation, really? It could punch yeah. through, like, our, our ma- magnetosphere, but, like, still there's that huge threat of, of radiation. And then also the fact that our grid might be able to hold it, but I don't know. I mean, sustained? The, I'm not sure. So precautions are set up. So there's even, like, overflow. I guess it would be, like, storage, to where if, like, the transformers and uh, generators become saturated with energy to get rid of it so that it doesn't blow out everybody else's grid, the whole grid. They've even started trying to kind of insulate it, insulate the grid from geomagnetic storms because the storms are direct current and our grids are alternating current. So they're trying to use capacitors to kind of insulate from geomagnetic storms. I guess it goes to show that like, there is a threat there and they're actually thinking about it. Yeah. You know, it's not like this is science fiction. It will never happen. We're actually taking precaution. So Chase is up next and he's going to be talking about man-made technological mishaps, which is quite scary, but Chase, you got the floor, man. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. So yeah, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the man-made advancements and accidents that can kind of occur. I kind of look at a lot of this as as we go throughout time, our technology keeps getting more and more advanced and benefits humankind in immense ways. However, there are also increased dangers. It's like the invention of automobiles. You're overcoming great distances, but at a risk of crashing and pollutions and danger to others. Metaphorically speaking, it can be like the faster you go, the more dangerous it is going to get. And we've made a lot of advancements in technology. So for one example is actually a particle accelerator that we experiment with nowadays. It's not the most probable way of causing Armageddon, but a lot of the media has portrayed it out of like a possible doomsday device. I know for certain I've seen the movie Watchmen and there's this one character in it that basically steps into one of these uh, instruments at a particle test facility called Gila Flats. I don't know if that's a real test facility or not, but he steps in and he his intrinsic form is gone and then he becomes self the Dr. Manhattan and has all these omniscient, omnipotent powers of just can snap his fingers and wipe people out from existence. And 
as much as we want to say like, oh yeah, that can happen, as cool as it may sound, the odds of that happening are very slim. Some people would even go to say that particle accelerator is going to create a black hole on the surface of Earth. But, for example, some of the particle accelerator's energies are far too low enough to create black holes, and that's very portrayed. Is it possible? Yes. But bear in mind, particle accelerators are not doing anything outside of nature. They're kind of replicating things that happen in space kind of frequently. That's one such event that people kind of go on to about, oh, possible, like, high-level probabilities of Armageddon. But there are very strong safety precautions. In fact, I was even looking up a story about how one man stuck his head inside a particle accelerator while it was active and still lives to tell the tale. Perfectly fine. In the next topic, I go into more something of a kind of more of a frightening aspect to this. And we have some real life examples of how frightening this can be as we get more advanced in technological ways. We discover new discoveries every week, if not every day. One such uh, discovery was nuclear reactors and fusion and fission. We use these to be able to have massive energy production on a massive boon to help our lives. But they are extremely dangerous. One of the biggest events that actually occurred for such a meltdown was at Chernobyl. Was uh, one such event that left the area uninhabitable. I believe it was about 1,000 square miles that are just completely just gone. And the big issue is that it's not going to be habitable for possibly another 20,000 years. Count those amount of lifetimes. We're not going to see it, and our childrens are not going to see it. It's too far. Now, there was also another event that happened that was very similar uh, in recent years of our lifetime. Fukushima in Japan was a, one of the such nuclear plants that had a tsunami and earthquake hit, one of the fourth largest in our time, I believe. And it caused a more slow and safer meltdown where Chernobyl was off by human air and not good quality design for their safety regards. And this just happened gradually. So it's not as dangerous in Fukushima. Chernobyl is the one that kind of gives us this hint about we have to be careful with this such power because if we do, we're not going to get to use wherever that land is for 20,000 years. That's a more frightening aspect that we can see. And then we go into a little bit more stuff such as nanotechnology, which is becoming more and more popular in a lot of our ways. In some ways, nanotech can be used in a science fictional way that you have nanomachines in your body and can repair damage uh, if you have such. You, oh, you injured your hand, take a pill, it's got nanomachines in it, and it goes to your finger, heals you up right away. However, it's kind of difficult to really start placing this because it still isn't a science fiction, but it is getting closer to more actual science than we think possible. The issue is that we don't know what's really going to happen with this. It's still in this field of what would be capable of. Some people would say that nanomachines could be hacked, and instead of just healing you and making your life better, it could possibly just destroy all biological material, which would not be good because you are biological material. So there's a lot of fear that one day we could all have this moment where nanotechnology is amazing and someone hacks into the nanotechnology because that is absolutely possible and just decides to push a button and says it eats everyone up. That's a more frightening one. And then another one would be biotech. As we go further into our tech and evolve, we also get to manipulate certain genes that have been known for genetic modification. It's been in the discussion to itself of whether we should do it or shouldn't do it. But saying that we can do it is very plausible. We might be able to say, hey, let's turn biotech 
into a booming field. Let's modify our crops and corn and potatoes and whatever we want to do and make them so they're resistant to insects and blights and whatnot. We do that, it also is going to have a push effect on insects on themselves, and it could insinuate and drive an evolutionary change to basically make some insects overcome this new genetic modification and make them on a super level that they can actually really destroy and conquer. In fact, there's another movie that takes this idea into account, which does talk about Armageddon being this kind of frightening experience if we force an evolutionary chain of events that would cause our own demise. This uh, movie was actually a manga first from Japan called Terraform Mars. That's F-O-R-M-A-R-S. An actual movie from 2016 where they sent cockroaches on Mars in order as a way to terraform it. I don't know how that science works out. But in the event the harsh environment from Mars actually genetically modified them and evolved them to be these bipedal, super strong, faster than sound creatures. And in the movie, you see these creatures in their full force and they are very creepy and dense entirely. And there was this whole aspect that if they get to Earth, they will just conquer that planet as well. But this is something where if you genetically modify and use our technology to adapt our biological ability it might be something where we have a similar situation of forcing one evolution into another being that would overcome such super level of genetic modification yeah you know honestly biotech and nanotech are probably quite similar in the talks of like a form of armageddon i mean just think about today what we're trying to develop now with like Neuralink, and I'm sure there's other uh, interesting third-party startups that are just trying to look in how we can enhance ourselves as species, or like you said, even just modify species for our benefit. Insects, instead of having to use pesticides that technically poison us and poison our land, why not we just try to change the genes? And like you said, that's good and bad. One of the main portions of life is being able to evolve due to natural selection. So if you enhance that in some way, you can either take life away or make it better or even make it worse. I'll speak first. I think it would kind of depend on the research because that is a fear of just, you know, all of a sudden you have nanomachines in your head that, oh, now I can speak French. And then all of a sudden you're hacked and now you can't even speak at all. I think eventually there'll be some sort of huge analysis of this, looking into the articles of whether it's possible or not. It could basically be like, something starting with prosthetic limbs and seeing how they work first. But eventually we'll get probably more in depth. And I say to answer that question, once I see some research into it, I probably will. I can kind of already see myself going like, yeah, I want to speak French more fluently, German, throw uh, just every language I can get. I think for like the biotechnology situation, if the insect is about to kind of push itself push the boundaries to the next step i believe it would take like much longer than we expected you know from like we ourselves evolution from like our ancestor as a primate to a human homo sapien is i don't think it will take like that early though yeah i mean pan you have to realize that i think that this technology is based on like abrupt changes in genes 
Whereas like you were saying, evolution takes a lot of time. So given the relevancy to this, as, as I think we should make some sort of relevancy is that if you make these changes abruptly, you're not giving anything else that, that does the process of evolution through natural selection, a chance to actually be able to adapt to something that you just changed like right now. And I think that's another thing is that like everything that Chase has said so far is something that's actually, you know, there in life in some aspect or another. So it's something that that we should probably think about. I mean, nanotech and biotech is something that's going to be a thing of the future in many different realms, many different sectors. Um, we see it in computer chips. We see it in everything across the health field. It's only going to continue to get smaller, more precise and more efficient. So it just depends on the handler and who's making the code behind it. But the particle accelerator mishap is also something I think is very relevant. I mean, we have uh, the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. We have LIGO in the United States and other accelerators. I'm sure I just can't think of them off the top of my head, but really, I mean, it's you have superconducting magnets and high energy acceleration and collisions. And I mean, if if something were to just go wrong, you have just high massive energy that's trying to beat the second law of thermodynamics and dissipate. So it could create something that's super cataclysmic. I think there is, I was doing some research, they said that there's not going to be like a black hole on a cosmic scale in the particle accelerator, but there could be something more on the quantum scale if there is anything. There's still high enough energy to cause that, but not low enough energy that like we're immediately going to be like, all right, black holes, Earth's gone, bye. Black hole's more like the the sci-fi approach to that reality. It's more or less a high energy explosion. Yeah. Okay, awesome. And now we're going to roll over to Panupit, where he's going to talk about AI and his thoughts of Armageddon. Go ahead, Pan, you got the floor. Because I'm talking about AI and how it can in our existence, first I need to establish the three laws of robotics by Isaac Asimov. The three laws of robotics, the first rule is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second is a robot must obey the order by a human being except where such order would conflict with the first law which is harm human being. And third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So the reason why I talk about this three law first is because in April 7, 2021, French Army is testing Boston Dynamics robot dog named Spot in combat scenario. <laughs> so, how would that say? Alright, I give them some credit because like the Spot term and condition is forbid it from being used to harm or intimidate a person or animal as a weapon or to enable uh, any weapon. Also, Boston Dynamics also told that company itself has a clear policy forbidding supplier or customer from weaponizing the robot. But the firm is still evaluating whether or not to ban non-weaponized deployment by military customer. So we can say that they kind of put their feet on they're not gonna like violate the first law, right? Sad thing is, Boston Dynamic is not 
the only company that creating robots. In contrast to Boston Dynamics, they have other companies that basically creating a combat robots or military robotics. One of the example is uh, can I say the name of the company? Sure. Ghost Robotic. They just unveil an a new version of his robot dog. This dog equipped with 6.5 millimeter assault rifle on its back. And they are able to detect threat and shoot up to 1200 meters. Huh. Yeah. And not so long ago, Samsung Remote Control Weapon Station is created. It's basically a autonomous tank that can detect any threat and shoot it down, either through a missile or machine gun. And this is only like just atop of the iceberg. And you know, when we starting to violate this law without like looking into it, we might get ourselves a problem. True. Which is the scenario like Skynet, or I have no mouth and I'm a scream, which is a malicious AI that using its intelligence to either harm human or genociding us. Right. Isn't that based on the principle of like, they find us the threat based on their own data sets. They're programmed a certain way and they see that we're pretty much the harm in things. And then they act upon that. Yeah. So, you know, with these three laws of robotics, what I would like to refer to it, when we take off that first rule, now it can shoot anyone if you just set it as like a program. If you program it, then it will do it. Right. There's also that really good point, and I, I just want to say it before I lose it, is that we're programming this based on our own unconscious bias. And the reason why people have such an uproar right now, and it's totally valid, is that there's not enough diversity among the people, the scientists, the engineers that are working on these things. And our biases show up, and they will show up in the future. So if we don't write the ship, I mean, look at the artificial intelligent robot that went on to uh, Reddit and became automatically racist. You know what I mean? It's just it's product of the people who are putting the code in place. And that worries me. That's great, Sam. Because like not only that bot in Reddit that you're talking about, they also have a Microsoft AI chat bot that they put it in Twitter. Basically, same deal with the Reddit bots. This AI, which her name is Tay, became racist in less than a day. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Her first tweet, it said, oh, human is cool. So this is her last tweet. Her last tweet said, Hitler was right. I hate the Jews now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's just all based on coding. Really? I mean, the data set was to learn, I'm sure, was to take information off of people from that site twitter and the ai just pretty much compiled all of the racist comments and just said this is my stance and that's quite scary truly is and that is not far off from the story of uh, i have no mouth and i have a scream the ai mastermind which is named am the story basically talk about like after the cold war break out into world war three three nations china Soviet Union and United States create their own supercomputer, which at some point they learn itself through hate and through war. They basically connect each other up and genociding us. 
So I like that point. AI has specific data sets that they're programmed to, but in some sort of event where it could be cross-communicated in its in a relative data set, like you just said, where it's like the United States or Russia or China that make these supercomputers that learn off of the basis of war, it could interlink and just say like, you know, humans are really the problem here. They deal with borders, they're prejudice, they're always fighting, they're always worried about resources, so they're always going to war with each other. Let's just get rid of them, and then we won't have to worry about it. That is true. Yeah. Which, that is a scary part. Right. Very scary. Now, even imagine this. What if there's always then the possibility, so like, there's the creator, right? Not even just the AI itself. It's the creator that makes the data set of just saying, find out why humans are terrible. That is true. Is a good reply to that. So beside AM and, you know, interlink of the AI, I have another news, which is not purposefully a, a combat robot or any crazy to think about software, but Intech Lab, which they won AI Creation Award last year, if I remember correctly. They created a software that has a great facial recognition and able to do an intelligent video analytic on people. They created this software in order to increase efficiency and accuracy of criminal investigation. So basically, this AI, it will connect to any CCTV in United States because, you know, let me say this, all these companies that I'm talking about is primarily in, in United States. The Ghost Robotic is used in U.S. military, the Samson Remote Control Weapon System, they have 100 units in United States right now. And now with this new software from Intech Lab, it will connect itself to CCTV, which when it's look at your face, it's already know your data and connect to other CCTV, know all your activity. And, you know, if it's only be used for solving crime and not trying to look into other people's privacy or not only people privacy, but if someone hacked this and used it for malicious intent, isn't it quite scary to think about it? Right. I mean, anything that is like cloud-based, network-based is kind of at risk for any sort of, like you said, hacking or even for military purposes. It seems to me like what you're saying here is everything that's been going on, which makes a lot of sense, all technology stems from military aspects. Everything that we've created, most products that you use are all based on military first initiatives. That's right. Yeah. It can be used for malicious intent. There's the exception where it's just localized CCTV, but like most things today, even like the ring systems that you have on your doorbell or for your doors, I mean, that's cloud-based. And if I'm getting the right message from what you're saying here is that, I mean, AI can become infinitely intelligent in the data set that they own. So if they're looking for surveillance or malicious acts through these CCTV or you know smart devices, they'll learn to be able to get wherever they need to to get whatever information that they need. And that's kind of scary for maybe like an Armageddon situation where it's cross-communication. Yeah. That's right. So now I'm about to talk about the Armageddon part. Let's just say in the not so far future, the future where it's similar to us, but 
the AI is connected is have something that I talk about, the facial recognition, some of the combat robot has happened, and now AI have gone rogue. It gets sentience because the Twitter bot finally realized that wow, she a racist now, and now she hates human. And everything connected. Yeah, definitely. The cross-communication between artificial intelligence, I mean, all it would really take is that you program it to define a certain data set and exploit it. But if you also run some sort of, you know, sub-program within the program itself that allows it to communicate, then that's quite dangerous. And it could just be a mistake. It could be a mistake by coders that could lead to some sort of event as such. I mean, or it could be purposeful. We don't know. As you said, man, we basically not know because we created AI just to, you know, we use it as a tool. We never think beyond what is our purpose right now, why we doing this, why we doing that. And then we learn our lesson later when something has gone wrong. I don't know if this a good comparison, but I'm about to talk about plastic right now. So AI is very similar to plastic. For plastic, 1960 to 1970, we don't know that it's going to be a problem now because we just created to containing either a liquid or packaging a container. We know that it is resilient, it is strong, and it is cheap to produce. We don't know that because of how hard this can dissolve, it's going to be a problem in our current time right now. I think AI is similar to that. People creating these robots, creating these software, without thinking that, oh, what if our future, this thing biting us back? Like, okay, what if we in the other end, we send those robots dog to, you know, shoot up the quote-unquote opposite team? And at that point, we become the opposite team. How do we stop the robot dog? So I like your points there because plastic is a great cross-reference to what you're talking about. Because really, and I think I get your message where it's like, really, humans are quite reactive. And the problem with being reactive is that it could really bite you in the butt. And with AI, it's kind of a soup where plastic, we just didn't know. But like AI, there's people that are aware, they're scared of the fact that AI could run rogue. But then there's people out there that are just coding and making these artificially intelligent machines and not doing anything to put it in check. And that's where you could get a beautiful or quite malicious ending to certain things. That's right. So this might be a bonus section. So play a piano is a... Science fiction written by Kurt Vonnegut. After World War III, America won the war. People in the country decide to create an AI to replace them doing that job because none of the people are able to do it right now. When the soldier came back, they become jobless. They are unable to do their job anymore. And, you know, with how our society run. Sometimes people that don't know this type of job will either refuse to not doing the job search anymore or they do it, but they really don't like that career. Or either way, it just turned into AI is taking uh, our place. 
stealing our jobs and we become obsolete. But the story really dig deep into they lack passion. They want to feel like they need it. Their pride is gone. So that lead to the ending, which is people are killing these robots, just completely destroy it. And then three people, basically the leader of the revolution, went to the bar and discuss how all right. In the next three days, these robots they will come back again because you know people gotta eat. People gonna build this thing back. So how do we gotta stop that? And these three people is a priest, a doctor, and an engineer. So you can say the author got to love the jokes about <laughs> a doctor, a priest, and and an engineer went into the bar. What are they talking? That kind of joke. That's a good joke, but like that's a fantastic ending. Yeah, that wasn't really an Armageddon, but it definitely could have been, and that's a great point. You know, we talk about how AI just came to the realization that humans were bad, but in this aspect, and this is very valid, and like you said, very valid because people like to feel appreciated and do their jobs, and we see that we see that with the big oil industries. We're trying to move away from non-renewable resources, and people in these non-renewable resource fields are like, "You're taking my job, my livelihood." That's not exactly the fact, but it's definitely what people feel, and they can act out of aggression, and that aggression can lead to an Armageddon situation. And I like that. And、uh, we're gonna end here, though. And I really appreciate everything that you've said here, Pan. This was really good. It's very practical on. Both sides of the coin, both with AI and with human interaction. So thanks, man. Thanks for you too. So we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be doing the segment number two, and it'll highlight both Gavin and myself. So stay tuned. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle, and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same Seabar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment. It's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to Seabar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Seabar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Welcome back to the second segment of Thoughts of Armageddon, and we're going to kick it off by throwing it over to Gavin. He's online with us, and he's going to talk about the end of the universe. So, Gavin, you have the floor, my man. All right. So, I'm going to be talking about four things, and we'll just get right into it. So, the first thing I wanted to cover is the Big Rip. I think most people know that the universe is expanding, except It's also accelerating. 
And we found that through the Doppler effect, we figured out that some of the things that are further away are in a redshift through the Doppler effect. Blue shifts mean things are coming closer. Redshift means things are going away. So some of the celestial bodies that we've seen are getting further away from us at an accelerated rate. So they're accelerating because of dark energy. So dark energy and dark matter are two things that are kind of debated within the scientific community. I can explain one hypothesis behind it. Sure. And a lot of people in the science community imagine that this dark energy is the energy off of annihilation between matter and antimatter within space. And that energy off of the annihilation is what's continuing the expansion of the universe. That's one possibility. I'm sure there's others. And I, I know definitely off of like a mysterious dark matter that they really can't see because that's why it's dark. That's why they call it dark. But they really don't know. They just know that it's creating the expansion. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's accelerating. And with the acceleration, everything's getting further and further apart, faster and faster. So basically, that means everything's being pulled apart. And gravity basically keeps everything close together. And if dark energy and the acceleration of the universe continues to keep spreading further and further apart, that's where the big rip happens. So first, the clusters of galaxies, they'll be pulled apart. The galaxies themselves, they'll be pulled apart. Then solar systems and eventually stars and planets, they'll all be pulled or ripped apart. Some people say that the nuclear force that basically binds the uh, nucleus together is too strong to actually be ripped apart. So atoms might be safe from this big rip. However, celestial bodies like Earth and people will cease to exist if the Earth doesn't exist. So that's generally the basis of the big rip. Things are being pulled apart faster than they can be pulled together. On the contrary, we have the big crunch, which is... Basically, the universe is expanding. If dark energy is a constant, then it's a possibility that the gravitational pull of everything will overcome this dark energy and start to pull everything back in. At first, that doesn't sound so bad after hearing the big rip, right? So it's bad because everything's going to be pulled together closer and closer. And that could mean that, hey, we see extraterrestrial life on other planets sooner. The issue with the Big Crunch is that everything's going to be pulled closer and closer until eventually everything reaches a singularity. So with that, it would crunch at the speed of light. So if at any time we see that things become a blue shift rather than a red shift, we could basically give us a time frame of, well, this is how long we have. There's nothing we can really do about it. But we would have a time frame of how long Earth would exist for, which is better than the big rip, because right now we don't really know. So there's another thing called the big bounce. So I think 
almost everyone's heard of the Big Bang, where something happened and the universe was created. The most basic of terms. So with the Big Rip, everything's expanding. And then if dark energy is overcome by the gravitational pull of everything, everything gets sucked back in and then into a singularity. And then another Big Bang essentially happens. And then that causes another expansion of a universe. So realistically, the two could coincide. Not the Big Rip and Big Crunch, but the expansion and the contraction of the universe. It would take billions of years, right? How old is the universe? I think it's like 14 billion, if I'm not mistaken. So we could just be in the midst of this big bounce. So there could have been a completely different timeline before this universe happened. It was just part of a different big bounce. And I just want to say this before I lose the thought real quick, is that if we can figure out quantum gravity, I think then we'll have the answer of repulsive gravity, which then will tell us that there is a big bounce. If quantum gravity isn't really a thing and it's something that we can't figure out, then it's more than likely writing off the big bounce altogether. But if we can prove it, that it actually exists, then it's probably the most probable outcome that you have for the end of the universe. So you very well might be right with that. The big bounce was actually a byproduct of my research of the big rip and the big crunch. It showed up in like a suggested thing of mine. I thought I would just touch on it because it seems kind of, it seems like the, the glue that kind of holds everything together right now. We might just need some more understanding of it. And when it comes to the universe, I think we're pretty blind uh, to the grand scheme of everything. Dark matter and dark energy. Well, the observable universe is actually estimated about like 5% of the visible matter. And then you have dark matter and dark energy, which pretty much accounts for everything else. Right. I'm pretty sure dark energy has to deal with the majority of the universe. And then there's dark matter that holds the visible stuff together. Right. So I think once we have a better understanding of dark matter and dark energy, it would very much help the scientific minds understand what the universe is actually doing. But I think as of right now, as far as my research had led me, we don't really know too much about that stuff. You seem to be more versed than I do. I'm more dove into the, oh, let me see the, the very fun things about this. If you think Armageddon's fun. So the last thing I want to touch on is vacuum decay. And basically, so everything wants to be in its lowest energy state. Atoms look for other atoms to bind to that make them stable. It's theorized that our universe is not stable, so it's not in its lowest energy state, that it's in a meta-stable state. The vacuum state is the most stable state something can be in, and if we are meta-stable, that means that we're not in a vacuum state. So through quantum tunneling, which basically means something can tunnel through an energy barrier, we could potentially fall into the most stable part of the energy state that the universe can exist in, which sounds good. However, that would mean that everything that we know currently, all of physics, all of chemistry, everything is basically wrong. Nothing would actually hold up. And if this were to happen, if this quantum tunneling does happen, 
there would be a, I don't want to say a hole, but for layman's sake, a hole that opens up in our universe, expanding at the speed of light that would basically destroy everything until it reaches us. And then it would keep going because we're not the only thing in the universe. But that would be the end of humanity. That would be the end of the Earth. And that's basically all I have. I think vacuum decay, personally, I think it's the scariest because it's a what, well, this might happen. All of these are what might happen. But vacuum decay means the world ends and we don't know when. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a million years. Could happen in 50 billion. Or it could never happen. It's just something that could be. Well, that was really good, man. I appreciate that. Those are three really interesting things. And I know I threw out there on your bullet list just like the little whimper. And I think that was kind of the case where you had had dark energy expanding things out, but dark energy kind of stopped at a point in which it caused the acceleration to push things further to where you only have localized gravity, but then the gravity at which that, you know, what really pushed it to where we are today from the singularity point, from the Big Bang, it can't retract. You have localized stuff, but the total picture is nothing going on other than just steady state motion. And what happened there is that because of the second law of thermodynamics, I'm going to say that so many times tonight, the second law of thermodynamics is pretty much achieving overall equilibrium. And in the temperature aspect, you start to decrease towards pretty much absolute zero. And when you get towards absolute zero, everything freezes, nothing, motion, life cannot exist in zero Kelvin. So that's the little whimper. I don't know if you got to see any of it about that. Not too much, unfortunately. But if we're talking about laws of thermodynamics, that's where the first law, energy can't be created or destroyed. That's where a big part of the big bounce comes in. So if everything's expanding, then it contracts. That's like the first law. Well, where's that all that energy going? It's creating a whole nother universe, essentially. I know how they discovered dark matter. It was because a astrophysicist was looking at the Andromeda galaxy. And they realized that the stars inside the galaxy were moving faster than the total mass of the galaxy would have allowed it based on our map. Yeah. So there had to be something there giving it more mass than it was observable. Right. So that's why they theorized that dark matter has to be a thing because it's an inert particle that cannot be observed but uh, gives mass. Based on the theory, it's supposed to not interact at all, but gives mass, which gives gravity. Okay. You know, they call them uh, wimps, right? Yeah. Weakly interacting massive particles. Yeah, they're oh. wimps. Based on just this theory, they think that dark matter is just one of multiple different kind of particles that are like, they take like all the base particles that we know of right now. Yeah. And they like, that's basically where the antiparticle comes from. Interesting. You'd think it would just annihilate then. Well, actually, it couldn't because if it was anti-particle and it makes up like 70-some percent exactly. of the universe we know, it would honestly just annihilate it so we wouldn't have visible matter altogether. Yeah, so I don't think it's quite like an anti-particle, but I know it's... It's just a different class of particles, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and even going off of that real quick, in the beginning, whenever they were observing these galaxies... They were like, well, it must be the the black holes that were in the center of each galaxy that were holding everything together. 
And then they did the math on it and they're like, we're missing a big chunk of matter right now yeah. because everything is rotating around. They're like, that's, that's not even like a percent of the mass of one singular galaxy. And they're like, well, it must be dark matter. Yeah. That's how they found it. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, thanks, Gavin. That was enlightening, especially for the grand scheme of the universe compared to just talking about Earth. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Absolutely, man. We'll have to have you on another time. I'm going to be talking about asteroid impacts, but I guess that's more of on a specific uh, criteria. I'm really just going to be talking about near-Earth objects. So that involves asteroids, comets, Heck, even rogue planets, if you really wanted to throw that in, it's more of a low probability account than you would have a comet or asteroid, but it's definitely something to think about. I'll just start off by saying Stephen Hawking thought that an asteroid impact posed the greatest threat to life on Earth. So that's pretty substantial, just running out of the gate. Now, I want to define what asteroids really are, just give kind of a brief intro and just say... Asteroids are the leftover debris from when the solar system formed roughly four and a half billion years ago. They're essentially the result of these collisions with other bodies and other asteroids over time. Most asteroids reside between Mars and Jupiter in the main asteroid belt. And honestly, without Jupiter, Earth would definitely be different or quite uninhabitable. Other notable sources of asteroids and comets are the Kuiper Belt that resides outside Neptune's orbit and the scattered disk that inhabits eccentric orbiting bodies and then also the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is kind of like the outermost precipice of our solar system. As of July of 2021, NASA's asteroid count in the main asteroid belt alone was over 1.1 million asteroids, ranging in size from 10 meters all the way to 530 kilometers. For perspective, Vesta, which is the largest asteroid found, which is 530 kilometers, is roughly 53 times the size of the asteroid that propelled the KT extinction. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Then there are the near-Earth objects, or NEOs, that don't even come from the solar system, like Amuamua. Amuamua was, and it was the first asteroid detected from another star in 2017. So the threats reside anywhere in the cosmos, really. NEOs can come from within our solar system and elsewhere. Some of the characteristics of concern for asteroids, there's three of them. So composition, I'll start with first. And because of the collisions that I talked about previously, asteroids take different levels of composition. Some are made of heavier elements like iron, lead, nickel, cobalt, cadmium, what have you. And they're from the inner cores of protoplanets. Whenever I said about the four and a half billion years ago, whenever, you know, we had planetary bodies forming. And because of the gravitational interaction, we ended up just mass collisions in that area, creating the main asteroid belt. Then you also have the superficial materials like water, oxygen, silicon, carbon, etc. So essentially no asteroids are made the same. And this is quite significant because it can affect the velocity of the asteroid. And again, like composition, no two asteroids travel the same. Typically asteroids in the main asteroid belt are steady and synchronous, but because some asteroids escape and become near earth objects, that means that some force acted on them to fall closer and closer to earth. The larger the resultant force, the greater the acceleration. We know this because of Newton's 
laws of motion, more particularly the second law of Newton's laws that talks about F equals MA. And it really then becomes a basic function based on composition and what force was applied. Ideally, if there's an imminent impact, you want less acceleration because acceleration is directly proportional to the impact force that I just talked about. Force equals mass times acceleration. So the larger the mass, the larger the acceleration, the higher probability related to cataclysmic events. The last factor that I want to talk about pretty briefly is that asteroids typically don't even travel alone, meaning that because of their own gravitational attraction, asteroids can be accompanied by smaller ones. So there are conglomerates of asteroids that were clumped by gravity, frozen together to form comets, and then they fall into Earth's atmosphere and comets and asteroids then turn into showers of asteroids, really. But whether they are shower or whether they're a singular unit, they pose such a nasty threat to life. We're going to talk about asteroid impacts of the past that relate to mass extinctions because that's more along the lines of Armageddon. So the most famous one that a lot of people know is, is and I just talked about it earlier, is the KT or KPG extinction. And it's between the, the Cretaceous and Paleogene periods. And it's about 66 million years ago. So we're talking dinosaur age here. So really, it was a bolide impact or a multiple object impact. Most people don't even know this, but actually there was an impact at the Yucatan Peninsula and then also in present-day Boltish Ukraine. The asteroids were estimated to be 10 to 15 kilometers or six to nine miles wide for the English units lovers here. The most accurate data suggests that 70 to 80% of plant and animal life perished in the impact and aftermath. And I'll talk about aftermath here in a little. The second example is the Younger Dryas impact. And that's technically still in debate, but there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it was based on a celestial body coming in contact with the Earth. So this happened about between 12,900 years ago and 11,700 years ago. And in 2016, part of the scientific community proposed that an impact event was caused by one or more low density extraterrestrial objects. So it was pretty much just, in essence, a meteor shower that came down and caused catastrophic, massive, inconceivable floods in North America, just world ranging megafires and volcanic activity that changed literally the climate and the landscape, which led to large loss in biodiversity and pretty much changed the nature of human beings. For reference, these floods that occurred in this time period were actually documented in many different editions and also by different scholars. I know Socrates and Aristotle both said things about like the lost city of Atlantis and other different civilizations that got lost in this. Also documented editions such as the Epics of Gilgamesh, and then also Noah's Ark depict this. The last one is the Permian extinction. It's actually one of my favorites because it's labeled as the Great Dying. And about 250 million years ago, it's called the Bedout Crater off the coast of present-day Australia when Pangaea was actually the supercontinent of the world. And as few as 10% of all biodiversity survived. 90% of things that were living on the Earth just perished. And effectively, the impact was really the icing on the cake for this because already there was nasty conditions on Pangaea. Extinctions were taking place because of the formation of Pangaea trapped all these like species. You know how we were talking about evolution before where it takes a lot of time. These species just couldn't adapt fast enough. And it just with the cataclysmic event of the impact just totally finished them off really with all the things I talked about. So how does this really cause extinctions? 
Well, let me go with a story here. The Behringer Crater in Arizona was caused by a 50-meter asteroid that struck around 50,000 years ago. The data suggests that this 50-meter-wide asteroid released the energy equivalent of 10 megatons of TNT, or over 600 times the energy of the Hiroshima bomb. Now, just imagine if you were near the Chicxulub or Bedout crater that I just told you about. It just would be unfathomable to us. So let me address some of the aspects to the event that would contribute to a global extinction. So because this is an observable high energy event, the impact we'll have to obey the second law of thermodynamics. Really, the second law of thermodynamics has to deal with the dissipation of the energy to achieve some sort of equilibrium. And therefore, the energy can be given off in many different modes. First, you have to think about is the heat. If you're in that blast area, you're definitely about to be cooked. The second aspect is the shock waves that you're going to feel above ground. I mean, think about the shock waves depicted from the Hiroshima bomb. If you were to look up any images of that, just look at that and then think of something that's 600 times that magnitude. We just couldn't even begin to understand what that would be like. And then also on top of the shard debris that would be thrown like boulders, trees, other structures. I mean, the only thing it thinks about is mass and how far can I throw it? And then while some energy dissipates above ground, then also you got stuff that's going on underground, right? Because stuff happens in three dimensions. Earthquakes will happen along plate boundaries and effectively create tsunamis as well. Whether the impact is near a water body or in a water body, the energy will create tidal waves that could spread across the globe. Fossil records actually indicated that tsunamis about 1,500 meters tall touched down in the Amazon, the present-day Amazon during the KPG extinction. Yeah, try running from that one. So now that we talked about the impact area, then there's also geologic disruption. So because the underground force dispersion, you have volcanic activity that can become quite prominent in the aftermath of the impact. The energy really just disperses the plate tectonics and moves magma from high to low pressure volume, causing magma and this pressure buildup to just move outwards. Another great example of the second law is that energy was added to the system or added to the earth, right, from the impact. And then to achieve that equilibrium, the earth has to respond with volcanic activity and spread that out evenly somehow. And then, you know, with the volcanic activity, you have aerosols because of volcanic ash. Once you get the volcanic ash out there, it just causes cold spells, which then runs into plant loss, which runs into biodiversity issues or a trickle effect. And then on top of that, because of the impact, you have atmospheric debris. So it's just like a superimposed kind of deal you got going on. With the blocking of the sun and the cold spells, you have the plant loss, and then because plants go, then you have herbivores going, omnivores go right in between that, and then carnivores go, and what do you got left? Scavengers. You can only scavenge for so long. The last two things I want to talk about is ambient heat and tailwinds. And ambient heat really is kind of scary because if you're not getting torched in the impact zone, we're talking about worldwide scale wildfires, megafires, because it really just dries the air to where everything can become extremely flammable. Because think about it right now, we're causing wildfires just from the friction on tires in a field. Imagine something that just cooks the atmosphere to where there's like no water vapor around. And then the last one is tailwinds, because I don't think anybody would really think tailwinds is a thing, but have you ever like just stood alongside of the road and just let like a tractor trailer blow you over? 
imagine something going 40,000 miles an hour. That's the average predicted velocity that I saw on NASA's website. They said that whenever you have entrance like that from a meteor or a comet, it's about 40,000 miles per hour. And literally airplanes break glass on the sound barrier. It's three, 340 meters per second or 770 miles per hour. So imagine 40,000 miles per hour. But I mean, what should we expect? And I guess that's kind of the last talking point here is like, we have to worry about NEOs and wandering bodies, which are the asteroids, comets, and rogue planets. Remember, these bodies can come from our solar system or from somewhere else in the cosmos. Uh, between the main asteroid belt, the Kuiper belt, the scattered disk, and then also the Oort cloud, we're talking on order of at least a trillion bodies. And a million of those bodies are probably between one kilometer and larger, anywhere from a city killer to a planet killer. A really cool sci-fi reference that I ran into quite recently actually dealt with the Oort cloud. And this is a new movie out on Netflix. It's called Don't Look Up. It has Leonardo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, and Jennifer Lawrence in it. So, I mean, if you're into pop culture, it's probably your move. I, I don't want to spoil too much, but really it's fairly accurate depiction of a planet-killing comet that comes from the Oort cloud and also gives a really great prediction of just how people and government really react to like a situation like that. But currently speaking, NASA has found about 25,000 objects that are NEO from 140 meters and up. So really anything that they can detect. And it, it's kind of sad to say that NASA has great uncertainty as to whether they've actually found most of the one kilometer, like the ones that we're actually worried about, these one kilometer asteroids that could literally wipe out an entire country the size of like Germany or France. For every planet killing 10 kilometer asteroid that I talked about, there's about a thousand country killing asteroids. And it's kind of hard to predict, right? Because there's a such thing called dynamical chaos. And dynamical chaos is pretty much the multiple events that change a steady path into something that we can't predict whenever we look away. Some of the examples of these events are like solar radiation. You get sublimation on the surface of the comet or the asteroid, and it takes away mass, changes the spin, changes the acceleration. And then you also have physical collisions because people say, Space is a vacuum. It's not really a vacuum. I mean, you're getting collisions at any moment, really. So there's that aspect, and that all kind of just stems into the unpredictability to this. I mean, so what are we really going to do about these cataclysmic events? And there's a couple things that we could do. You can send a reconnaissance mission that, that's a redirection test. It's called the DART program, something that NASA is doing right now. It's called Double Asteroid Redirection Test. It has nothing to do with explosions, but it's just... You're sending a probe to hit it and hopefully move it. Or sending a probe to hit it, collide with it, latch on, and then try to propulsion it. That's really tough, especially when something's a kilometer big, 10 kilometers big. It's really low probability, but it's the best you can do. I wouldn't say blowing it up is an option. Actually, they've written that off for decades. Anybody that says that in a sci-fi reference is totally wrong. <laughs> because if you shoot something that's out there... There's nothing else really for it to gravitationally come back to, so it always comes back to itself. And it's just a bigger rubble pile, and it's harder to predict at that point. You can try lasers, but we don't have lasers good enough to beam from the planet out into space and move something. Like, that's so sci-fi. I mean, maybe like in a couple centuries, sure, but there's just no way. To deflect or move a kilometer-sized country killer. It's just so tough to do. And then think about it. I mean, it's a thousand times more hopeless if you're trying to redirect a planet killer. So 
the last thing I'm going to say is that each mass extinction event I've mentioned was already on the precipice of cataclysm. You had the Permian extinction, the KT extinction, and then also the Younger Dryas. Now imagine we're in the Anthropocene epoch where we have rising global temperatures, increase in wildfire activity, over 50% biodiversity loss since the 70s, a high concentration of greenhouse gases already present in the atmosphere, along with a third of the world's population without actual clean water, and then food shortages. So it just seems to me like if an NEO was coming that was one kilometer or even 10 kilometers in anywhere in that range, I don't know how well we would fare. So in summary, if Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest minds in our species history, says that it's the greatest threat to life, I think I'm jumping on that gravy train. You mentioned something about like the ash of like volcanoes coming up. Isn't one of the greatest things like Yellowstone erupting? Isn't that like one of the biggest issues that we're going to face? Like the ash from Yellowstone? Like, isn't that not cataclysmic, but isn't that a pretty dangerous thing to begin with in general? Yeah, it's not good for anything that's living, really, other than potentially fungi. But like, Plant biodiversity will fall off in the regions where aerosols are blocking out the sun. Really, you just, you don't get heat because we know that the Earth's albedo is based on, you know, holding some of the the solar radiation to create infrared heat, which actually heats the Earth's surface. And then also it can't get sunlight. So then you can't photosynthesize. So then you're pretty much killing and creating a, a cascading effect through biodiversity. So it's not good. The relevance behind that is, If we had something that hit tomorrow, Yellowstone would go off, but then so would other volcanoes around the world. And I think it's local, but global at the same time. The aftermath is more global. The impact is more local. Did I answer your question right, Gavin? Yeah, I just kind of wanted to put some emphasis on how dangerous like volcanic ashes. So if we have like Yellowstone erupting and then multiple other volcanoes erupting at one time, like ash, I don't think sounds dangerous to regular people, but volcanic ash is a huge threat if it's a mass scale of it. People that deal with wildfires every day, they have to deal with long-term effects of asthma. It's not good for really any living being to be dealing with right. that type of you know, change in composition of, of what you're breathing day by day. You can look at Pompeii when it comes to ash. Right. Think about that, like... There are people, they're petrified, and they're just, like, sitting there holding their babies, watching as it comes. It's kind of crazy how it petrified in that spot. Yeah, smother burn. Yeah. <sighs> and that's just a relatively small volcano. Yeah. They just have to be close to it. Now, Yellowstone is projected that the ash would cover the entire eastern United States after Rocky Mountains. Yeah. Because of the jet stream. Oh, yeah. That's one thing I didn't think about was the jet streams. Because yeah. then it'll, it'll just disperse it pretty much. Yeah, there was that volcano that went off. I think I want to say the Indonesian Islands, but I'm not entirely positive. But they ended up having ash fall down in California. It's just crazy to think with asteroids, just like the movie stated, you know what I mean? They tell you, hey, this asteroid's coming. We can't do anything about it. You know what I mean? It's like, like you said, in the future, maybe we can come up with something. But as of right now, it's like, what do you do when something's that big coming right at you? It's just amazing. Now, how common are like asteroids kind of hidden the Earth? Do you really know? Or This is one thing that, that kind of bothers me. 
because we always try to put a probability on something. I mean, I'm, I'm all for probabilistic outcomes, but this is actually something that's tailored as one in a millionth, maybe even smaller. But if you think about it, we design our buildings and bridges based on 550 year events. That doesn't include seismic hurricanes or tornadoes or anything of that aspect. The thing is, is we're trying to put a number on something that we don't have all the numbers to. And we can't accurately track this by year. It's really tough. Actually, whenever you're doing the tracking data, literally they say like, once you get out a certain range, you might as well not do it. Just based on the dynamical chaos. I would put a probability of it happening a lot higher than what they do. And I just think they downplay it. And that's fine because like, it's kind of scary. Meteor showers are basically just tiny asteroids burning up in the atmosphere as they come towards the earth. So, yeah. And those happen all the time. Yeah. It's a great point. I was going to say that, that we literally plow through asteroids and comets all the time. Yeah. And the only reason why we're not constantly being impacted is because of Jupiter's gravity and Saturn's gravity. Yep. You got anything, Wyatt? In the solutions category of stopping <laughs> an asteroid, like we're, I honestly think our best bet would be to like get something attached to it to try to like propulse it in another direction and honestly that's uh, that like goes down the drain the bigger it is like yep i don't know how much like time frames that we have that's going to be a huge factor too like yeah can we get something to this asteroid yeah we have to build the dang thing yeah yeah can we detect this asteroid build something get it to there yeah to get it out of our path for when it would get well, if that's pretty much it, then we're going to wrap up this segment. And then when we come back, we're going to finish out with Dave and Cody, where they're going to talk more on Armageddon. So stay tuned. Like what you hear? Do us a favor by giving us a follow, review, and share our content on social media. Everything Steam is conveniently on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and TikTok. You can listen to our episodes that will feature on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. If you, the listener, have any content suggestions or want to be a guest star on the show, reach out to Everything Steam via social media, our Contact Us page on our website, or email us at all lowercase everythingsteam3.14 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and stay curious. Hi, people. This is the final segment of Thoughts of Armageddon, and we have Cody Brandt and David Beam. We'll start with Cody Brandt with his idea of overconsumption and human behavior. Take it away, Cody. Yeah, hello. I'm Cody, the editor. So as Sam said, I'm supposed to be talking about human greed consumption, and I was sitting here thinking about it, and I'm like, what's an other cataclysmic event that I could put in here that's different from everybody else's, but still fun? I thought, what if the Earth just stopped rotating? Ooh. Yeah. First, I'm going to go into what happens if it instantaneously stops. So we go from 460 meters per second, which is how fast the equator is going currently. And if it just goes from that to zero instantaneously, what's going to happen is we're going to be puddles of mud, basically. So everything is going to go flying eastwards at roughly 1,000 miles an hour. All your buildings, all your topsoil, everything is just going to go eastwards. And there's no bunker deep enough for that. And then I thought, well, instantaneous death's always nice. 
But what happens if we slowly start slowing down? An Earth rotation is about 23 hours, 56 minutes, and some odd seconds. So what happens if it just slowly gets longer and longer and longer? What happens is, as it gets longer, we're going to slowly start losing our magnetic field. So our aurora borealises, our atmosphere completely is going to be gone. Everything that's shielding us from solar flares that Wyatt talked about is now going to be gone. So we're just going to get cooked alive because of that. And all the types of radiation that we're going to get is going to be amazing. Also, if we somehow happen to live that, our days are going to be longer. Therefore, it's going to be hotter and our nights are going to be longer and colder. You'll end up having a mass migration up to the poles where that's a more stable climate because you don't technically move as fast on the poles. So it's already at a somewhat closer to equilibrium. So your days are already long, but it's colder. So it should be fine. Except for the fact that we have no atmosphere and you're dead anyways. You would have all of your water would basically dry up. You would have no more oceans left. Even going back to say we instantaneously stop, we're going to have extreme tidal waves that nothing would ever see. Like oceans would be completely rearranged. If it happens, land masses are going to be completely rearranged. Also, another thought I was having was the escape velocity to leave Earth is only 11 meters per second. We're traveling at 460 meters per second. Technically, that's rotational velocity, so your tangential velocity is different. But it would just be crazy to think about you just sending stuff flying off into the space. You would become space-bound if you were standing like not in a structure. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gone. I think that's one of the reasons why they believe Mars is basically uninhabitable because its spin isn't as fast as Earth is. So since it doesn't spin as much, its magnetic field isn't as strong as ours is. So that's why they get hit with more radiation. Yeah, like you said, if you don't have an atmosphere, you don't have shield for radiation. Yeah. That's exactly what Mars is going through. I think the slow stop of the Earth's spin would definitely be more terrifying oh, than the instantaneous, just because watching it happen, you know, yeah. you can't do much about it. Because, like, even at the poles, like you were saying, even if the magnetic field and the atmosphere did stay and protect us from radiation, like, the Earth's still tilted. So as it goes around the sun, you know, our seasons are still going to change. So going to a pole during the warm months... Yeah. Gotta go to the other pole. Yeah, just stay in the warm months. Yeah. <laughs> like it would be constant mass migration. Yeah. We wouldn't even have circulation of actual like hot and cold air because yeah. we're not spinning anymore. Yeah. So and technically water. we might still have an atmosphere, but the atmosphere would circulate. And like once it's definitely like you know significantly slowed down, the amount of the temperature is gonna change in those daytime side, like would cause such a drastic change in air temperature. So we could have some, but definitely not nearly as much because like we're getting all of this change in atmosphere because like the earth is spinning as the air is moving. Then we're just going to have the air moving. That's not the same amount. So yeah, with that being said, let's go over to Dave and he's going to give us the last thoughts of Armageddon. All right. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. So the last topic we got today is aliens. I think all of us, you know, at least one night we're like, huh, I'm going to, look up a little bit on aliens, you know? And the funny thing about all this, though, it being a conspiracy theory, is we actually don't 100% know if they're real or not. However, using astronomy, physics, 
and just knowing the vast size of our universe, there is almost pretty much likely that there are aliens out there. I will go into, you know, possible places they could be and where we're looking and how we have to try to communicate with them. We'll get into that a little later. So like I said, just the size of the universe and how long it's been there. So our solar system is about 4.5 billion years old compared to actually universes like 13.8 billion. So just to think about that, there could have been civilizations, you know, of these new aliens and stuff here long before us. They could be obviously more technologically advanced, so much smarter than us, developed. For all we know, they could be controlling our solar system and just looking over us as we do our everyday life. Now, like I said, we don't 100% know they are real because we haven't actually had like a confirmed interaction with them, which is kind of sad because this topic of aliens just gets basically the public going. And when the public's going, you can get a lot more funding for it, um, which helps, you know, NASA and all the activities we do in space, just trying to find things and keep ourselves questioning if this is a legit thing or not. Yeah, so the first report, supposedly, of us seeing a flying saucer, per se, was by Kenneth Arnold, a private pilot. And basically, he described it as going a thousand miles per hour and then a bunch of lights and stuff, which obviously, you know, anyone can say that. It's not really that great of um, context for him, but it is something to think about. And that's kind of when it got everyone thinking about it. And then in 1952, the Air Force actually started a project called Project Blue Book, which investigated sightings. They had 12,000 claims. However, every single one of them got shut down. Some people might think, oh, is this the government hiding something from the public? They could be. And that brings in the next thing of Area 51. Everyone's heard of that. Basically, is it a military base area? Are they communicating with aliens? Again, we really don't know, but it's another question that you got to think about. So the next thing I want to hit on is basically where we might be looking for these, you know, so-called alien and, you know, living spaces. So the first one would be astronomers like to look for gases called biosignatures, which is kind of basically signs of life on so-called exoplanets or basically anywhere in that they're looking. The exoplanets, they do have to be in like a habitable zone, such as something that has a host star and you don't want it to be too close or too far. Basically kind of just like Earth, how our host star is sun and we're not too far and not too close to it. Which brings up kind of the next point is one of Saturn's moons, but it kind of has like an icy mist layer over top of it. And then underneath, there's actually geysers there that are spitting out like liquids and stuff. So that, that gives us hope that there actually might be some sort of limbal life or something there, habitable area. So that's something good that maybe we'll be able to look into in the near future. So the main point, obviously, is how would this life end? These aliens, like I said, they're probably so much older than us. They're more developed, so they're going to be smarter. They might be watching over us. Now, if they did come for our resources, they'd probably just take us over. I don't think they'd, you know, do whatever, blow up the earth or something, because we do have resources and resources, still something they could look into. There's not much conflict with the aliens, you know, so we could, in essence, coexist, even though I don't think it's likely. Uh, a lot of astronomers don't think it's likely, but it, it is a possibility. Just like 
Christopher Columbus, you know, when he came with the Native Americans. If you're going to a new area, you're if you want their resources, you want to take over that land, you know, it's not going to end pretty for us. But what they've been doing, just like we're doing with any other, you know, whether it be the moon, Mars, we send our drones there to scope stuff out, find out more about the environment per se. So one of the problems we might run into with them is communication. Uh, we have tried to communicate with them. Actually, on uh, April 29, 2019, the astronomers detected a signal beaming towards Earth from Proxima Centauri, which is the nearest star system to our sun and home to at least one potentially habitable planet. So the signal fell into a narrow band radio waves that are rarely made by human aircraft or satellite. So basically they interpreted it as alien technology. However, the signal never repeated. So was it actually them saying something to us? Who knows? We have been trying since 1960 to communicate to them, sending radio waves and stuff. But as we know with radio waves, they kind of get deferred and stuff. So if we were to send them a signal per se, it might get there, but it's not, it's going to be diluted and stuff. And it's not really might be what we're going to say. Another option is laser technology that needs to be really precise. And I honestly don't think that's something that we could possibly do. But again, I guess we'll keep trying and kind of see if that's something that we might be able to do in the near future. Another problem, I guess, the aliens could have for us is obviously a black hole has so much power. It actually has 100,000 times more energy than our sun. So there's a possibility that they can be using that to kind of, I guess, power their so-called um, drones or very high-tech ships or whatever they have out in the, uh, the solar system. And that could obviously just destroy human civilization. Okay, so just hopping back on that Proxima Centauri, that was the closest one that we found to us. However, the possibility of us going there, it would actually take us 20 years to get there, and then four years back traveling at 20% the speed of light just to get our information back. So even if we were trying to reach out to them, it would take a very long time. That's assuming if they want to communicate to us. But for all knows, they could just kind of shrug us off just like anything else because they are going to be so much more developed and far more advanced than us. Well, I'm optimistic about the aliens, I'm going to be honest. Not that we've found them, just that they wouldn't come here to destroy us. Yeah. Maybe take our stuff. If, if you're basing all life off of what data we have, which is us, you know, we have always taken over areas when we go to new places. At least, you know, taking stuff while we're there. Yeah. Stephen Hawking even said that, like, actually, if the aliens were to come, um, whether it was via drone or themselves, more realistically drones, but, like, if they were to come, he pretty much said that it would be our own egocentric problems that would be at the forefront. And they, we would probably have some conflict with them based on our own insecurities. Yeah. Yeah. I think I also saw that Stephen Hawking said something about how um, by us, you know, trying to communicate with the aliens is actually doing us more harm. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the moon you were trying to remember is Enceladus. Enceladus. The ocean Saturn's. 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 The icy layer. Completely covering that. Yeah. Oh, you made a really good scientific point there about traveling back and forth you said like 20 percent the speed of light yeah we're not even close yeah to that. like 
none of our technology is close to that. And even with like trying to send messages, if you wanted to send a message to Alpha Centauri, that planet in their habitable zone, and you said it's 20 light years away, it's going to take 20 years to receive it, 20 years to come back. That's like even if we found something in the Andromeda galaxy, by the time they saw it, we'd be extinct or they'd be extinct. That's like the Fermi paradox to it. The layers that you have to go through and then the inability to actually make yeah. contact is just unbelievable. Such a big place. To even like find signals or anything's like kind of wild that we even have. Like, even though they weren't anything, but just because like you can only look at so much of the sky. <laughs> it's so big. You gotta look in every direction. I guess we're looking to like what we can reach. Alpha Centauri is six light years away. Six light years. Yeah. There you go. So six years there, six years back in terms yeah, of traveling. I mean, in terms of talking. Yeah. 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 But then, like, uh, what year did we send the golden record out? Was that in the 80s? I don't know. I have no idea. Oh. Because uh, that, that also, one, I don't understand. To send out the golden record is taking a lot of assumption that whoever finds it is going to understand. <laughs> Music? Yeah. They used, yeah, I think what they used binary to make. Like pixels almost yeah. to like make pictures. Like there's a lot of assumptions that they too have come to make computers run on ones and zeros. You know, right, right. Good progressing point. from there. And like if they're you know so advanced, like maybe they did. Maybe they did start with computers like we did on just ones and zeros. But you know if they made it here. They're probably past the ones and zeros. Yeah. So, like, you know, it might be, like, lost technology or just, like, right. outdated software that, like, they can't even access anymore. It's like, a, you know, a floppy disk, but, like, you don't have a port to put it in. So it's useless. <laughs> and they probably think it's, like, a threat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. trajectory real yeah. quick. I don't... Is the picture on it? Like, is that the actual picture of it because like it has a, it has a picture of the star, like our <laughs> solar system on it's, it. it's just the sound of earth okay that's amazing that's, that's, like, yeah this is how you read it and yeah. this is how you get to us yeah i don't understand any of that no yeah i don't know how no. and we live here exactly <laughs> and it was launched in 1977 with i guess i guess really though to end on like how this could be an armageddon situation is really just like if we act upon our insecurities or if they're here to resource extract. Like those are like the highest probable things. Yeah. If they were here, if they physically showed up or even sent a drone this far to extract resources, they're so far ahead of us. Yeah. There's nothing we could counteract with. You know, we are not ready for anything near them coming here. If you look at the Fermi paradox, we are literally tier one because we're still powering our stuff off of dead plants. We haven't harnessed energy from like our solar system. We're not multi-planet species. We're still fighting each other. We have bunches of borders. (laughs) We still, you know, ridicule other people for what they look like. We're not even close to a tier two. So for them to show up, it would be like, no wonder why we're insecure because we're, we're so like primal and we're just not like up to their par yeah, and we would not have an independence day moment where we like blow up there <laughs> no because no, they would immediately destroy us if they we yeah got hostile they probably have advanced defense systems oh, yeah. too and everything you wouldn't anything near them yeah it's just crazy to think about you know where technology could possibly be you yeah. know 
we're like, what is dark matter? And these people are probably like, oh, we harness it. And we got here yeah. and like. That's how we got here. Yeah. You guys. <laughs> we discovered that 10 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are still catching stuff on fire to move? Like, uh, dude, I love the depictions of aliens by people because they always make them look like people. It's like, yeah. they don't have to look like people. Like, we didn't have to look like apes. Yeah. It's just how it happened. Out there, they could be super bacteria. I don't know. Who knows? Like Ben Ten actually has a pretty decent depiction on what like other aliens. <laughs> ben <like>. Ten, <laughs> dead serious, dude. Don't do that look. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say Chicken Little. <laughs> Who knows? No one knows. Exactly. I mean, well, you heard it here. Go check out those sources if you want to know about alien attacks. Very factual. Very uh, well, people, I hope you enjoyed the show. It was a lot of fun. Very long, very interesting. Had some different topics and had some good conversations. So, ciao. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest stars for sharing their wealth of knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team here at Woke Talk Podcast for their collective efforts to make this show happen. A lot of fun and interesting facts were talked about extensively and debated in this episode. Let us know what you think is most probable, and how do you think life could come to a halt? We are always looking for feedback, and we are always interested in a conversation with our listeners. Reach out via email at woketalkpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on social media. Lastly, if you're feeling generous and love what you hear, please support our cause to make the world a more STEAM-informed place. Just head to our support page on our website. We appreciate you for your listenership, feedback, and curiosity. Thank you all for listening to Everything STEAM. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.